<clears throat> bringing your awareness to the presence of your whole body sitting here. Settling into the different sensations appearing and disappearing. And opening up the attention to hearing if you find it helpful. to the presence of the different sounds appearing and disappearing. <coughs> Noticing the texture of the sounds how they begin, how they change, how they end. And if you're using the movement of the breath as your primary anchor, <coughs> bringing your attention as close as you can to this movement that we call my breath without forcing the attention. Noticing the texture of each breath. Noticing its presence and its absence. keeping the attention as simple and bare as you can. Just noticing what is. And continue to find that balance within your own practice of anchoring the attention with your primary anchor as much as you need to. And at times when you feel like the attention is more stable, And still, at times, letting your attention just go with what's predominant, 
what's happening in your moment-to-moment experience. Each moment is alive, it's living, it moves. It's your precious life. Sounds, body sensations, mental states, hindrances, moods, emotions, and awareness itself. See how carefully and tenderly you can be aware of each moment letting life appear and disappear just as it is. doing the best you can to get out of the way and stay as alert as you can. There's five. (laughs) The question is what the five jhanic factors are when you're doing the metta practice. Um, You can... There's jhanic factors, the same jhanic factors in mindfulness and insight, so, um, okay. Um, Jhana basically means, uh, you know, a focused mind, the unified mind, uh, and jhanic factors are what makes up (laughs) jhanic, thanks. Jhanic factors are what make up a unified, focused, concentrated mind. So the, uh, some of you know these already, but the, the first two, that um, getting a fork and aiming it into the potato that Upandita talked about, we taka, we chara, those are the Pali words. And basically, the ability to aim the attention and connect the attention. Uh, this happens in metta practice or vipassana practice. Um, if you can do that, if you can aim the attention to what's happening and sustain it, um, that's, that's the first part of these five jhanic factors, the first two. Then the third, uh, rapture often hap- happens, PT. Uh, and there's many diff- there's five different kinds of rapture, supposedly, and there's just deeper and deeper levels of this very, it's like um, joyful interest is rapture. And then um, in metta practice, that would be a joyful interest in the person you're doing. So for example, you might be saying, may you be happy thousands of times, and you might aim and connect with that. You might say the phrase, understand it, but there really won't be that joyful interest in the person you're doing. And then suddenly there'll be this, you know, interest in that person. And then it's the same in Vipassana. You might notice the breath (laughs) thousands of times or the movement of the legs or anger or whatever it is you're aiming and connecting with. And then suddenly there's this interest, you know, in a sound or in life itself, interest in in paying attention, period. Uh, So that's that joyful interest. The the next is... um, Sukha, that sweet happiness, 
that comes when we really get immersed in whatever we're paying attention in. And the concentration will feel like it really deepens as you go through these jhanic factors. Aiming, connecting, sustaining, joyful interest, and then that sweet happiness that comes. And again, it can come in vipassana or metta. Um, usually when you're doing metta and that sukha comes, you'll feel um, like the duality between yourself and that person breaks down. And that part of that is why this, the happiness is so sweet. And in vipassana, that sweetness or happiness will come because you won't feel a duality. There's no sense of separation, and that you know that feels really sweet happiness. Um, in vipassana, that happiness isn't dependent on whether the sensations are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So the happiness is based on you know not on whether something is pleasurable or not. In metta practice, that happiness is very pleasurable. <laughs> um, and the fifth jhanic factor is ikagata, a tranquility, um, calm, very one-pointed. Uh, the mind isn't getting lost or wavering at all. It's very calm, very tranquil. And I think it's, it's, it's good to know these in some levels, but then I would throw them out the window <laughs> in terms of uh, feeling, again, that you have to have these happen or that you need to control anything. Um, these things come and go. Concentration comes and goes. Mm-hmm. Would you speak Is the breath your primary anchor? Okay, because I think if you're, if you're doing something else as a primary anchor, apply this to whatever you're doing as a primary anchor. Uh, if you're doing hearing, for example, uh, or the body, uh, apply what I say to that. I'll speak to the breath. It's basically right effort is doing the best you can and really having an honest assessment about whether you're actually able to do something or not. So if you're able to connect with the breath and sustain it, uh, I think it's worth doing. And the, the reason for that is that, you know, like I was saying this morning, life is alive, it's moving. The, um, you know, it's moving at a level that is really hard to see. It's hard to be with life as it moves, and it's hard to see it clearly. And so it's kind of a paradox that we're trying to get the attention very still, we're trying to get the attention still enough to be able to be with the movement. You know, so the more scattered the mind is and the more lost it is, you can't see it because the mind is moving, you know, the attention is all over the place, it can't see clearly. So the, the concentration is basically getting the attention still, which is done by focusing on one thing, usually. Um, that might happen for you in three seconds. You might get really still. You'll feel yourself get really still. It could happen, it could not happen on a whole hour. <laughs> you know, there are times when the concentration will happen and it requires making an effort. Meaning that um, if you just let your mind go totally, uh, you wouldn't get very still. Although my experience was that if I couldn't, if I couldn't do that, and I just let my mind go, eventually the energy would come and I could. Uh, so, so it's like right effort is, is that balance of really doing it if you can and seeing if you can. Whenever you've noticed you're all over the place, check in again and see if you can. But if you can't, to be really careful of, of judging yourself because it's just the, the energy isn't there. 
Uh, and it might be that you open up to sound, or you might be that you try the body and sound for a while. And then you do the best you can, but if you can't hold it together, if you're constant, if the stillness isn't there, you just wait till it comes back. And the only way you can make sure if, you know, if, if that's happening, if the right effort is there, is to check in once in a while and see, am I able to do this? Whether you're walking, whether you're chewing, you know, your food at lunch, whatever it is, whether you're brushing your hair, <laughs> shaving, you know, the, the same thing applies as can I, can I connect with what's happening? Uh, And that right effort also changes for us over time. I think that at the beginning of practice, it takes, you know, there is that more of an effort than, you know, as as you become an, uh, seasoned at it, uh, there's different layers of motivation that happen. When I first came to practice, I didn't know it, but I wanted everything to stop. I didn't want to. I didn't, I was interested in understanding life, but I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to open to pain. I wanted, <laughs> wanted just stillness. Uh, but I didn't know that. And then over time, I was able to see that I wanted understanding as well as stillness. And so your motivation will go through changes. And it will go through changes in a day. You'll feel like you're up for life as it is. And then there'll be times when you're not up for life as it is. And and being able to work with both of those is right effort. Being able to back off at the right time is right effort. And being able to go for it is right effort. And you have to listen to where you are. And Carol's going to talk about um, right effort tonight, so there'll be more about it. Yeah, and again, be careful of feeling like you have to understand all this because I never I never could have talked about it. Um, you have to explore. You'll find out as you go along. And basically, concentration is repression. It is exclusion. It, you're going to one thing and you're totally ignoring everything else. And that you're supposed to be. That's backing off. You're not opening to life as it is. You're just focusing in on one thing. Um, you're not letting go of control. You're controlling. And that brings about a tranquility, a stillness of mind. It's very helpful. I don't, wouldn't underestimate concentration. It's extremely restful. Uh, it's what allows us to have the strength and energy to open up to life as it is. But it is exclusion. And sometimes you'll find yourself pulled out when you're more needing concentration and a sound happens uh, and it's strong and you get pulled out, you won't like it. You know, that's a sign that you're really need, you know, you're in the concentration and you'll get pulled out to anger, you'll get pulled out to a, a, a loud sound and you'll feel yourself wanting to be more inside. Um, that's the different, mindfulness, it, you're okay if you go. Mindfulness, you let the attention go. You explore it, you come back. Uh, sometimes that's choiceless. Sometimes if there's a loud sound or a loud thought or a loud body sensation or whatever, you'll get called. But you know, we're encouraging you to go, explore, and come back to the breath. Go, explore, come back. 
At times you won't want to go explore and come back. That's okay. Stay with the stay with the primary object. Sometimes you'll get pulled. It'll be choiceless. Go, come back. Other times, it the mind. You know that there'll be times when you won't need to be that connected to the anchor, and you might let go of control for five seconds, or ten seconds, or maybe a whole sitting. The mindfulness will be strong enough not to have to come back to the anchor. However it happens is okay, though. Don't feel like one is better than the other. And I have to move on to a few announcements. Any questions this morning? question is about the in-between areas between um, the formal periods of sitting and walking. Um, I'm needing to ask you another question because the question is around what to do about obsessive thinking patterns during that time. What do you do with them? So what are you asking? For the in-between areas, yeah. Okay. Sometimes when he's um, caught in an obsessive thinking pattern, he can just label it, it dissolves, and he's fine, and other times he gets really lost in them. Um, I find for myself that in the in-between areas to make notes of um, very large movements to be really helpful. You know, so say I'm reaching for a door knob or to push through a door. Here there's uh, many different kinds of doors at IMS and doors are quite interesting. Uh, So I don't make a note for every movement that I make because you'd hardly move. Um, but for large movements, I find that it gives you more of a chance to be mindful. And so if you make a note of intention to reach or reaching, then you stand a chance of being with that movement of reaching. Uh, and it really, in the in-between areas, it de- depending on your re- what relationship to them, if you're thinking of them as sort of... Um, filler or secondary, you know, if they seem less important than sitting and walking, it's often harder to be mindful in those times. And sometimes it takes a a real assessment of, do I equally value this time? Um, It's like each moment is worthy of paying attention to. Each moment of our life is worthy, but we tend to think that maybe you couldn't possibly understand anything when you're flushing a toilet. You know, what, why, why pay attention to that? Uh, <coughs> or brushing your hair or whatever. That somehow being with a breath will seem more important than those, but they're really important. Uh, so I found that for me, that I had to find the right balance of how much to note there because if I noted too much, I got bogged down, and then I wouldn't do it at all. Uh, and if I didn't do it enough, I, I wouldn't be there. Uh, 
And then there's the whole level of, with obsessive thinking patterns, there's usually an emotion underneath them. So if you're planning and planning and planning and planning, usually, other than boredom, there's fear. If you look really closely at planning, there's often a way in which we're trying to manipulate the future so that we experience the least amount of unpleasantness as we can, and we're trying to manipulate so that we experience um, as much (laughs) pleasure as we can. For example, that's, there's something underneath obsessive thinking, and if you just note thinking or planning or fantasizing, sometimes that just doesn't touch it. And it's possible to walk around here <laughs> because, you know, that's more what's happening, where you're, you're like aware of insecurity, fear. You know, that... that you're not really noting reaching or, or uh, brushing or looking, uh, that you can be really with the emotion as you're walking around. Those are some ways. And be careful of feeling like you have to do that perfectly because I found in my own practice that there were times when I really wanted to be mindful in the in-between areas, but I only seemed to have enough energy for sitting and walking. And I've had many retreats where this changes, where I might have some retreats in that, I, in the beginning of my practice, I, I didn't have any energy for the in-between areas. I just thought, you know, the teachers were crazy to think that, to ask me to be aware of something more. You know, <laughs> come on. It was awful. You know, and my first retreat, when I walked, um, <laughs> I would walk to the place where people would walk out and it was the first three-month retreat that was taught in the United States up in Maine. Um, and I would actually turn around and stare at the people that were still sitting after an hour. And I'd just stand there staring at them in total disbelief that somebody would, you know, do that. You know, I thought they were <laughs> nuts. I couldn't comprehend that you would have that kind of practice. It, and that's how it was for me, my first sitting practice, that I couldn't imagine being mindful in between areas because I didn't have the energy. And then at some point, I did have the energy. I had to still make the effort, but I had the energy. And then I went like that for some years, and then suddenly I went to another place, and I didn't have the energy again. (laughs) So it can change, you know. It's not that it stays... It's not always the feeling of an uphill climb <laughs> yeah. and that you'd go, you never fall back into not being able to do it. We have um, been here for three weeks in terms of being doing the practice um, fully. Three weeks, we're moving into three weeks, month, uh, and often at this time there's a way in which we'll feel like at times we're less mindful than when we came here. Uh, and it might not be your experience, but there is a way, if this happens in the next week, uh, or if you're having that sense at times, be careful of evaluating or judging your practice at this time because you're probably much more mindful than you think. Uh, But it's hard to see that. It's hard to measure that. The only way you could measure it is if you went out of here and went into town and went into a grocery store. You'd you'd get a sense that you weren't normal, you know. But if you're feeling normal, you know, you're not. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm going to reassure you that you're not, uh, so that you don't have to go to town and measure it. <laughs> so there'll be times when you're going to feel like you feel very ordinary, uh, and that, you know, what happened in three weeks? Nothing. And you can't, you know, we're going into the place in the retreat where you can't fathom where you are. You don't have any measuring rods. Uh, and just see if you can trust that uh, there is something happening and that you're much quieter, you're more mindful than ever, but the more mindful you get, the more you see how much you're not mindful. You know, so there is that way that around this time you start feeling tripped up. Uh, you're actually more mindful than ever. Even on a bad day, <laughs> you'll be much more mindful than when you got here. There's two announcements. <clears throat> Any questions this morning? A few weeks ago, you said that you practiced for about nine years during which time you would sit down and just wait to see what would happen. And uh, my question is, um, what did happen? Actually, more than that, did you find a good way to practice? And uh, um, do you still do it that way? Or do you, was there a reason why you just continued practicing? The reason I'm asking is that I tend to do that when I'm did everyone hear the question? No? Um, the question was about uh, something I said in a talk about um, the first nine years of my practice when I would go to sit down to practice. Um, I wouldn't I have any technique. I would just sit there and wait. Uh, so he's asking me about that, what happened. <laughs> And why I changed. I can ask why I, I can answer why I changed really easily when Upandita, when I sat three months with Upandita, his style of practice was very different. It, it like totally opposite of that. So I, I surrendered to that style of teaching. Um, the reason I mentioned it is because I think that that nine years taught me um, that liberation is natural, uh, totally natural. There's, you know, it's like it's accessible. Basically, all you have to do is um, show up. Uh, so, and that showing up is a lot. You know, if you just come, if you did this, the reason I say it is because if you came in here and did this three-month retreat and didn't try, uh, just the power of the silence and you, you couldn't help but notice some things about oneself because you're not talking. Uh, but then there's a power in following the form. It wasn't like I was laying down and sleeping all day. I was coming in and sitting and I was walking. Uh, but I wasn't applying any particular technique. Uh, and I think that there are times when mindfulness, energy, concentration, as you can see, come together. And there are times when it doesn't. And that's what I saw, that even if I didn't do anything, if I didn't make interventions, that there were times when uh, sleepiness would be there, and then it would totally clear and it would be, <laughs> and I wouldn't have done anything other than just keep practicing, keep going. It's, as you can see, it's hard enough to keep going. And if you just kept going at the practice uh, day, you know, and keeping the schedule, a lot happens. And then I found that it was very interesting to do practice, uh, practice where I was, um, making interventions. I think the, the thing that I learned the most about that was precision, how to be more precise. There were times when I thought that I was here <laughs> and I was spaced out. Uh, and so I felt that the way Upandita taught helped me to be much in a more 
aware of frames of moments that I had been um, not as clear. I, got, I felt that the mind got clearer in, in terms of more moments. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit? There are some choices to be made. This morning I was sitting in a lot of um, feelings of fear were coming up. So I sat with that and labeled and, and sat. And um, much to my surprise, in front of me I saw a vision of the white Tara. Now I could at that moment have kept labeling to vision, vision. Mm -hmm. Um, seeing, seeing, seeing. Seeing, seeing. It seemed more helpful to, at that moment to invite her in to my heart and let that, that being of compassion be with me. Is that a skillful way to operate with that, or should I stay? Sometimes the Vipassana at moments like that's often cold and barren. Mm -hmm. Again, I think that when we have. Um a decision like that to make, it's important to see where we are. And so if there's fear and it's hard to be with, then it's quite um, important to do something that would bring some compassion. If, if we're not able to be mindful with fear, uh, metta or compassion is, is the only way we're going to feel safe. And then I think that when we feel uh, reassured and safe, then we're able to be mindful. So, you know, sometimes there'll be images or uh, imagery or fe feelings that will happen that uh, are helpful. So a white Tara, basically, <laughs> you know, any kind of an image of that white Tara is compact, you know, a very compassionate image. And so you would hear, it's like hearing the voice of some of these things. It's like there's a, that, that sort of just listening and feeling the compassion from that image. That's fine. Uh, it could be that if it kept happening over and over, I would recommend see, noting seeing. But there are, you know, certain special moments where it, it's important to listen to something like that. It would be very similar to somebody sitting in here feeling a lot of fear. And if a Buddha image had the same uh, help, if that image was helpful for you, you can open your eyes and look at the Buddha image. You know, for another person it might be that they looked at the flowers, uh, or it might be that an image of... Um, Kuan Yin came, or Mary, you know, I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's more, at times, it's helpful to have something like that to bring in the compassion. Compassion is a little different than metta. Uh, compassion is orienting an open heart toward pain. So it, it's directly focusing this openness of heart toward any pain. It's caring about it. It's a very pleasant feeling of care. So in this case, uh, instead of uh, noting fear, fear, one would try to have a... It's the same feeling of metta, but you'd, you'd feel that compassion or care for that fear. Do you, do you see the difference that, with that with mindfulness? You're not, you're not going into the physical sensations of the fear. You're not making a mental note of fear. You're, you're dropping that and you're just sending an energy of care toward that fear. And usually that can shift one's relationship to it from resistance to, to an openness toward that experience out of the care. Mm hmm Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. Just wanted to give that comment on how you might actually. The question is about uh, energy leaks. <laughs> it's sort of like watching gasoline, you know, kind of flow out of a car. Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer this question maybe a little differently in that. 
sometimes when we have a lot of energy for practice uh, and you're, you, you have your, you sat in the hall and then you do a walking and there's a lot of energy for practice and yet a little voice comes in and says, you know, maybe I could just have a cup of tea or maybe I can go lie down for a while or I think I'll just skip this next sitting or whatever. When there's a lot of energy and we take a break like that, that's an energy leak. It's, it's taking breaks when we really don't need one. Uh, but I would be careful of feeling like that's the rule all the time because there are times when it's really appropriate to take a break, that it'll actually bring energy. You know, when we're up against, you know, difficult stuff or, you know, it's just time to back off, then actually continuing on would be an energy leak. And it's really important to not have these hard and fast rules about what an energy leak is. It's really knowing your own practice. And I think the whole practice is honesty with ourselves. You know, really honest self-assessment. And there are times when opening up and backing off will really not be honoring the energy that's there. It's not respecting our own practice and not being honest enough about what we can do. Because we can do a lot. You know, don't underestimate yourself. And there are other times where it's really important to back off. And only you, <laughs> only you can know. You know, only you can be that honest with yourself. Well, it's another beautiful day, so enjoy the practice. I've been starting my day with uh, Metta. Uh, this is the first time I've incorporated that into the practice. And I find a lot of, as soon as I started doing it, a lot of sort of bodily restlessness, coming up, yawning, um, irresistible itchings, and Mm-hmm. The question is, he's added some loving-kindness practice into his Vipassana practice at the beginning of the sitting, and he, he experiences a kind of restlessness that he doesn't experience when he does Vipassana. Um, how long do you do the metta? An hour. An hour, the first, the first sitting. And how, when does the restlessness come? So he does the metta for an hour and the restlessness comes in two to three minutes in the <laughs> metta. Um, usually restlessness is a, a lot of energy and the concentration is low. And, and so the experience is very uncomfortable because there's nowhere, anywhere you bring your attention, it kind of slips off. And so the yawning or the itchiness actually can happen, a lot of itching in the body can happen because we're getting more concentrated. Um, So that's not, I wouldn't consider that a problem. Um, Are you wanting to kind of run out of here screaming? I mean that's, restlessness is usually a feeling of wanting to run out. Uh, uh Well if it's not that big then I would, usually with the metta you can, if you're having too much energy and not enough concentration, I would slow the phrases down rather than do them at a normal speed. And you might even just say metta, metta, or loving kindness rather than all the phrases. Because, you know, when you do the phrases, you're tending to crank up, <laughs> you're cranking up the energy. So if the energy isn't quite in balance, I would do something to balance it, which would be to really slow it down. Uh, You might do a phrase like once every two minutes and just try to get into the uh, feeling in your heart more than concentrate on the phrases. That's what I would recommend. If it's too much, you know, if it felt like it was too much, I would just do the amount of metta. Do some metta, go back to vipassana. Do some metta, go back to vipassana. So you'd mix it in that sitting so it doesn't get too out of balance.
Did, did somebody tell you to? Okay. Usually we don't recommend that you use something that's predominant like that as a primary anchor because sometimes it, it isn't neutral uh, and that it's so strong. Uh, the, an- the primary anchor, the first criteria is that it's neutral and it's often somewhat refined uh, so that um, I would recommend talking with your teacher about it more but uh, generally we that there's certain suggestions for primary objects and there's a reason for them. They're neutral, they're a little more refined, uh, there's something that doesn't take over like that. That uh, heartbeat, those internal sounds are usually not what we would recommend for a primary anchor. It's not that it won't, you know, like pain in the body is another example where it, it can be very strong, it can be concentrating, uh, but it usually isn't good to take those kind of objects that are so strong. Uh, the way to work with it uh, is it. It's neutral, but it's pretty strong, you know. So I, what I would recommend is that you see if you can find an anchor. It could not. It might not be the breath. It might be uh, sitting, touching, or hearing, sitting, something. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you don't let go of control like that and just let it come in like that. You know, at times I would let it, but I would try to find something that isn't as strong as an anchor. Mm-hmm. That's because you're getting concentrated with it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I would let it happen at times, but I think the, the anchor really is meant to be <laughs> a little more refined than that. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't take over as a pre- predominant object. A primary anchor usually won't take over as a predominant object. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you speak louder, please? Thanks. Hopefully. (laughs) Um, Usually it's wise to bring our attention to something that's predominant and um, that we have the strength to see clearly and we're not going to get carried away with it. Uh, So in that situation I would say that at times it would be very wise to bring yourself back to the hands and ground the attention there. I think it's very important to ground the attention uh, with something before you go into fear. Uh, so so say, say we just follow along with that example and the first, you know, you notice you're with the hands, the sound happens, fear happens. Uh, at the point that one would notice fear, I would acknowledge it and then ground the attention with, with, 
the physical sensations that are more neutral. Fear is usually not so neutral. Uh, it's often something we have aversion to. Uh, and then see what happens. And if, if, one, if the fear came back, uh, I, would, I would do both, which is I would, I would keep grounding the attention with the physical and then if the fear came, I'd notice it, go back to the physical. It would be like coming back to the primary anchor, come back to the breath, open to the fear a little. The fear might disappear. Um, if one was feeling like one wasn't up for opening to the fear, then it would be wise not to open to the fear. If one felt like an interest in the fear and some ability to explore it purely, then it would be wise to open to the fear. And I think that the way that I'm describing, which is to keep a relationship up with some anchor outside of it, is usually helpful so that we don't get overwhelmed by it. This question is about... um, sustaining attention. I find that with physical objects like the body, the breath, hearing, I'm able to occasionally fix and sustain attention for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But with mental uh, phenomena, fantasies, which predominate in my consciousness, I find that I'm not able to to, to, to fix, Mm -hmm. to really get it. It's like it's like the, the physical sensations, like the potatoes down here, and I can aim the fork and get it. But the mental phenomena, like flying potatoes. This is a great example of um, <laughs> how to aim for potatoes, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's a great example of how physical sensations are happening much more slowly than mental phenomena. Thoughts are happening at a velocity that are much harder to see clearly than physical. So uh, over and over again you'll hear us encourage you to ground, keep grounding the attention and learning how to do this with sound, body, because thought is much harder. And fantasy kind of thought, fantasy is very seductive. You know, in some ways the word fantasy has a uh, flavor of how seductive they are. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend aiming and connecting with it in the same way that you would with a physical sensation. In some way with thought, it's usually better to step back and it's like bring the attention back to knowing that the thought is happening rather than, you know, bring the attention into it. Because the nature of thought, you know, the more, I think the more you'll explore it is that when you're actually thinking a thought, you're lost in it. That's the nature of thinking. It's like um, the minute you get into the content of it, you're lost. But if you can step back, uh, there's some space with it. Uh, and that space is the only way that you can see that it's just a thought. Uh, so it could be that you're moving toward it, the, the fantasy, rather, and that you'll usually get caught up in it and you'll be flying with, you'll, with the image of the flying potato, you'll be flying with it. And it, it, it's like stepping back is like stepping on a clutch in a car it disengages the, the stickiness of the mind with the thought. And then you usually you can go, oh, at least you can go, oh, <laughs> fantasizing. And there's, a, is, there's that space. And, and hopefully at that point, one will ground the attention with something physical again. Uh, and usually if the fantasy thought comes again, again, by grounding with the physical, there's a little more space. And, and it, it, it's that stepping back, stepping back, rather than going in. It's not easy. <laughs> They're moving really quickly. Just about early childhood emotions have special considerations of working with me amplify. 
uh, say, preconceptual early childhood emotions, where they're not, they're more general and not so easy to identify, and say associated with early uh, traumas of uh, abandonment, loss, rejection, things like that. What's the question? Special <laughs> considerations. Are there Did everyone hear? Oh, okay, the question is about uh, early childhood. Um, memories that are particularly traumatic that are pre-verbal is what you know pre-conceptual pre-verbal such as abandonment or loss or that are traumatic how to deal with them um, I think the most important part of the question is is really pre-conceptual or pre-verbal when we have a pre-verbal and a memory and especially it usually will come through the body uh, you know, there might be vague, vague recognitions of these things, but often they come, pre-verbal early stuff often comes quite amorphous. It usually comes through the body. It usually comes as an emotion. Uh, it, it, takes, <laughs> it takes a lot of uh, care to be able to let these come and go without trying to figure them out before they reveal themselves. It's like bec they're, they're much more in the category of going into unknown territory uh, because, you see, when you experience them, you know, way back at two years old or one, one year old, the reason why they're coming up is because one didn't have the strength to experience them fully. One didn't have the strength to be mindful of it. Uh, they were really painful. And that because they were really painful and they're early, uh, there wasn't strength to go through that experience. So what happens is that they start to surface. Usually when our, our psyche feels safe enough, there, it's usually a good sign. It's a sign that one's safe enough to let these experiences that were so sometimes damaging or traumatic, uh, to let them come up in the safe place. So the safety is important. And that question about why wisdom, when to go in and when not, when you feel like you don't feel safe with it or it doesn't feel like one's strong enough to go through it, it's really okay to back off. In fact, it's really wise to back off with these things because if you try to go into them and uncover them and work them out, your system will feel like you have an agenda and you're probably moving too quickly <laughs> and your system won't feel safe and your system will shut down even more. So the, the whole thing with these early things are, are, are really a lot of patience. These things have taught me more about patience than anything. If you can let these things uh, come up when they feel like it, uh, if they're just a little bit, let them be just a little bit. Uh, and slowly, as you let these deep, difficult things have a life of their own, um, the, more, the whole issue is safety. The more safe you are, and the mindfulness is the other aspect. Mindfulness, compassion. Uh, another thing that usually one didn't experience how to go through these with compassion. Usually one was alone. So bringing compassion into it is bringing... Um, you're not alone if there's a compassionate awareness with it. And the ability to be compassionate and aware heals that going through these uh, without basically an adult present. Uh, my experience with any of this stuff is that the worst part of any kind of early trauma is that the aftermath of it was that I was alone with it. And that as, a, as an infant or a young being, that's what's so hard, ultimately. Um, so bringing, anytime you can bring in compassion, uh, tenderness, care, really giving it the space to do what it needs to do, then it heals. Hmm. Nice weather we're having. <laughs>
I, we're having another little storm today, so enjoy this uh, feeling. It really pulls us in. It's great. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.